Now take your Bibles and please turn with me to Luke chapter 2 as we continue our studies through Luke's gospel. Uh, today, uh, Lord willing, rounding out chapter 2, and uh, as we did last week, overlapping one verse at the beginning, so also today we are backing up uh, to verse 40, and we'll be reading verse 40 through 52 of Luke chapter 2. You can find that if you picked up an ESV on the way in on page 858. Luke chapter 2, today reading uh, verses 40 through the end of the chapter, verse 52. Before we read God's holy word, please join me as we pray to him. O Lord, our righteous God and giver of all good gifts, we pray that you would meet us with a picture of Christ, your Son, our Savior, a righteous servant, the one who came to give salvation to your people. We pray that we would see him. We pray that you would soften our hearts by your Spirit to see uh, what it is you're calling us to believe or to repent of and to do, and so make us not hearers only, but doers also of your word as we look to Christ, we pray in his name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. My wife, uh, like most parents do, we have a, a wall in our home that is dedicated to pictures of our children. Ours is in the family room. It's right above uh, the couch. And it's a bit of a work in progress. The, uh, the goal, at least, uh, when everything is said and done, is for that wall to be covered with exactly 18 portraits. Uh, six pictures of each of our children to be a record of their early years of childhood. So there's a picture of each one as a newborn, each one around uh, their first birthday and second birthday and so on, up to age five. Uh, and if you are a parent, uh, you probably have uh, some collection of, of your own somewhere in your house. Uh, you'd like to display the pictures of your children. I love to be in your homes and get to see the funny pictures that you have of your kids. And, and maybe I know them now as young adults, but I get to see them as children. And it's exciting and it's fun to see those things, and even if you don't have children, I bet your parents, if they're still with us, uh, have a picture of you somewhere as a 
awkward, pimple-faced teenager because parents love that sort of thing. And you can learn, you can learn a lot about a family by noticing the pictures that parents choose to display of their children. And the same could be said of God the Father and Christ the Son as well. What happens when we open the New Testament very often is, is it is as if the Lord is inviting us into his home and taking us into the family room and standing us back to look at the wall where he has all of his favorite pictures of his son displayed. And he says, I want you to, to see my boy. As you stand back and you look, you notice that over uh, to the left, there is a handful of pictures, baby pictures. Jesus in the manger, Jesus in the temple, Jesus being whisked away to Egypt for his own safety. And over on the other side, there's a much, much larger collection of pictures of Jesus as a man, and he's, he's ministering to the multitudes, and he's raising the dead, and he's healing the sick, and he's preaching, and there are pictures of suffering and of death and of resurrection glory. There's a picture of a heavenly throne room, and one in the middle who looks like a lion and yet a lamb, and there are angels gathered around in celestial worship. And between these two sides, in the middle of a very vast expanse of empty wall space, there is but one picture, just one. And it is Jesus, at the age of 12, sitting in the temple, sitting at the feet of the teachers. Now, as you look at all of these pictures, as you stand back and see images of Christ displayed in the pages of Scripture. You have fallen in love with this Christ, and you're curious about this Savior, and you want to know more about Him. You want to know every memory He ever made. You want, you want to see every road He ever walked on, and you are curious. And so you ask that natural, curious question, Lord, isn't there more? What about that that stretch in the middle when Jesus was growing and when he was being prepared for ministry, didn't, didn't Jesus do anything else? Didn't he say anything else? Isn't there any more? And the Lord in his wisdom and by the record of scripture that he's given us says, well, of course there's more. There's lots more. Jesus did many things. And, and if you had a picture to hang on a wall of everything that Jesus ever did, the world would run out of walls before you ran out of pictures. Of course there is more, but this is the only picture I want you to see. Suddenly it raises our estimation of this humble vignette to know that this picture is the summary that the Lord wants his people to have. The only summary of the 30 years between uh, Jesus' infancy and his adulthood when he begins his ministry. This is the only one, and the Lord is telling us, this is all I need you to see of my son. And those long, silent years of development. Now, as we look at this picture together today, let me suggest that there are two focal points that we'll be looking at. We're going to look first at Jesus' growth. We're going to look second at Jesus' identity. Those are our two points, Jesus' growth and Jesus' identity. And let me warn you that we're going to spend much more time on the first one than we will on the second one, but that's okay because that first one really covers the vast majority of our text. And that is because this is the way the Holy Spirit has framed this picture for us. It comes, and that's why we backed up to verse 40, it comes in language presenting Christ to his people in terms of real human growth and development. Verse 40, the child grew. He became strong. He was filled with, with wisdom. 
verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom. He increased in stature. He increased in favor with God and man. And, and the scriptures are telling us that Jesus was a real, living, growing, changing person. And we need to remember that. Of course, we're aware that if Jesus was born in a manger and he died on a cross as a man, that, that there was some physical change going on there. He went from a baby to a boy, from a boy to an adolescent, from an adolescent to a man, and so he grew and he became strong and grew in stature. We understand that, but do we often consider the fact that there was also real intellectual growth for Jesus? That Jesus didn't come into the world and live as a man possessing or claiming, we might say, together with Philippians, divine omniscience. That Jesus grew intellectually. Every year that he lived, he learned new facts that he did not know the year before as a man. At the age of 13, he could reason in a way that he could not reason when he was five. Maybe that's surprising to consider that. Here's the way Phil Riken uh, talks about this. He says, many Christians think they believe in the incarnation when what they actually believe is that Jesus had the mind of God in the body of a man. It's interesting, when you go and you look at some old medieval paintings of Jesus as a baby, very often what you will see is this tiny baby with an old man's face. And it's kind of creepy if you see it. But this is their way of showing sort of age and wisdom and maturity. But no, Jesus looked like a baby, and he had a, a man's body, and he had a man's mind. What, uh, what Phil Riken is describing actually is the ancient heresy of Apollinarianism. But the biblical picture of the incarnation is much richer. It's much better. It tells us that, that Christ came as a man. It tells us that he grew in wisdom. There's intellectual growth in our Savior as he walks this earth. There is also what we might call a spiritual growth or a, a social growth. Verse 52 says that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Of course, there was never a time that the son was out of favor with the Lord. There was never a time that God was displeased with his son, but as Jesus grew, as he obeyed, as he increased in wisdom and knowledge and love for the things of God, so also did the Lord become more and more pleased with him. And we see this declaration when we get into chapter 3 and Jesus is baptized, that this pleasure of the Father in the Son is complete. And there's a formal declaration, behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because all his life for 30 years he's been growing spiritually and socially in, in the favor of God and of man. And so what we see in this passage, the frame that surrounds this picture is a picture of Jesus' real human growth. And this is important because when we look at verse 42, what the scriptures are presenting to us is Jesus on the cusp of a pivotal moment in human development. It tells us that Jesus is 12 years old. Now, if you have a preteen in the home or a teenager, you, of course, know this is a tumultuous time for your children. This is a time when young men uh, get taller and broader and their voices get deeper. They start to look and sound and act a little bit more like men. There, uh, there are physical changes. There are intellectual changes where your children can reason and, and dialogue in new and exciting ways, and all that's happening. Uh, but for Christ, the most important change that was on his horizon at 12 years old was a covenantal growth. Jesus had been circumcised. We read that several weeks ago. 
Jesus has been circumcised, and because he was brought into a Jewish family and given the sign of the covenant, uh, he would have been considered a son of the covenant. That is the term. But at the age of 13, uh, he would become a son of the commandment. That is, he would become a full, responsible adult member of God's people. Now today, the Jews call this a bar mitzvah. At the time of Jesus, the language wasn't used, but the concept was still there. The rabbis taught that at the age of 13, a boy became a man in the eyes of God and the believing community. That he was expected to be held accountable like a man and to be treated like a man. He was expected to keep all the commands of the Torah like a man. And one of the very important commands in the Torah, which we sang together, if you were paying attention, Psalm 122, Uh, that this is what God's people do. They go up to Jerusalem, and so it was that all of the males were required to go up to Jerusalem at least three times a year. Deuteronomy chapter 16 tells them that they should appear before the Lord, uh, where he sets his name for the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover, for the Feast of Weeks, and for the Feast of Booths. Now, the most important of those three feasts was the Feast of Passover. And so even if it was a hardship for you and you couldn't make it to those other two, even if it was an economic difficulty or you live far away from Jerusalem, all good, pious Jewish men made that pilgrimage into Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And they would go up to the holy city to celebrate God's redemption from Egypt. Now the women were not required to attend, but many of them did. And so Mary went up with Joseph, we're told, year after year, just like faithful Hannah in the Old Testament, and probably they all went up, Mary and Joseph together and Jesus and his siblings by this time, year after year, and yet at the age of 12, things were different. It is because not only did the rabbis teach that at 13, a boy became a man in the eyes of the community, but at the age of 12, maybe even at the age of 11, Uh, that fathers were required to bring their sons to Jerusalem and introduce them to all the rituals, all of the festivities, all of the significance of the covenant upon which they were, uh, with which they would be uh, saddled with the burdens of. And my English is terrible right there. But you understand what I'm saying. They would come up and they would understand all the significance, all the commandments that they were putting themselves under, that they would be held accountable to. And it was a pivotal moment to this age of 12. In fact, that's what it says. In the ESV, we're missing a phrase at the end of verse 42. The ESV says, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. It should actually say, they went up according to the custom of the feast. It wasn't Mary and Joseph's custom. This is how it was done. At 12 years of age, you would bring your child, your son, up into Jerusalem, and he would see all that happens with the Passover. Now, on the cusp of all of this intellectual development as well and growing in wisdom, you can imagine the impact that this 12-year pilgrimage had on young Jesus as a boy. Because he would have been taken with Joseph, his father, into the temple. He would have seen all of these lambs as they were brought bleating and they were sacrificed and their blood was gathered in gold and silver bowls and, and sprinkled on the altar. And they would have wrapped up, uh, after they dressed the lamb for the sacrifice, they would dress it up for a meal and take it home. And Jesus would sit with his family while the meal was prepared. And perhaps at 12 years of age, uh, Jesus was the one who was given the privilege of asking the question to Joseph. Father, why is this night different from all other nights? And then Joseph would Tell again the old, old story. He would give the account of God's people long in burden and slavery in Egypt. 
He would tell of God's righteous and mighty strong arm, bringing plague after plague after plague upon Egypt. He would retell of the angel of the Lord passing through the cities and claiming the life of every single firstborn and every single family. And he would tell of the blood of the sacrifice which covered God's people and kept their firstborn sons safe and redeemed them because of their faith in the Lord's promised deliverance. And all of this is happening for Jesus as he's growing, and you know how it is. You've been in those worship services. You've gone to those conferences where the worship is electric and the preaching is engaging and the last thing you want to do is leave. And so very simply, without any explanation, in verse 43, Luke tells us that when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind. Now, the thing about Jesus is that he was such a good boy. He was such a good boy that he was always exactly where his parents expected he would be, and so nobody thought to double-check, hey, where's Jesus? Well, I'm sure he's where he needs to be. And off they went, and as they traveled back, practically half of the village of Nazareth was traveling together, and their caravan would have been spread out probably along the road for a mile or two as grandparents and cousins and friends spoke about what they had seen during the feast. As they talked, and each group probably moved along at their own pace, and nobody wondered or worried where Jesus was, because he's always where you expect that he will be. And it's not until the evening when the caravan comes to some designated place, and they separate again into family groups and settle in for the evening, that they find that Jesus is not where they expected him to be at all. And so it is back to Jerusalem. A day's journey away from the city, a frantic day's walk back into Jerusalem, a day spent uh, searching frantically for their lost boy in a crowded city until finally, verse 46, they found him. And they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And we're curious, and we want to know more. And we want to know where Jesus slept for two nights. We want to know what he ate for three days. We want to know who was looking out for this boy in the city while he was all alone and had no parents. And it doesn't tell us. This is all we get. The Holy Spirit shows us only where they found him, listening and learning and asking questions. They found him impressing the crowds with his understanding. And they found him content, the Son of God, content to fill the role of a student under God's word. In fact, that's the perfect summary of verse 52, isn't it? He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And here's what that looks like to grow in wisdom and favor with God and man. It looks like Jesus consumed with knowing and learning and living out the word of God. Now, yes, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and many people have tried to crack this puzzle and wrestle with what was actually going on. And no, he didn't stay behind because he was some sort of disobedient preteen. You notice, of course, Luke tells us later in verse 51, uh, he characterizes Jesus' life not only as, as a life of growth, but a life of submission. And he went back with them and was submissive to them, and then he connects this picture that, you know, Mary's hindsight really is 2020. And she's thinking about his submission in Nazareth after the fact and realizing he, he wasn't actually disobeying, even though it seems clear that that's what she thinks at the outset. 
And lest you should worry about this, no, the scripture is very clear everywhere else that Jesus is completely and totally and absolutely without sin. He was not a disobedient son to his earthly parents. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained. We read in 1 John 3, 5, that in him there is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he is the one who knew no sin. So no, Jesus did not, despite what some people might like to tell you, Jesus did not stay behind because he was disobedient, nor did he stay behind because he was merely clueless. Oh, I wonder. I'm just left here all alone. Why did Jesus stay behind? He stayed behind because he was so delighted by the law of God that he couldn't tear himself away. Have you ever talked to somebody late in the day and they say something like, I'm really hungry. Oh, I, th I think I forgot to eat today. Do you want to say, are you kidding me? I've been busy. I've never been that busy. I have been so busy that I haven't had time to eat. I've never been so busy that I've simply forgotten that eating is something that I'm missing out on. And this is what's happening with Jesus. He is so enthralled by the truths of God that he is genuinely learning as the scriptures are being opened, as he's seen again the significance of the Passover sacrifice, and he's connecting the dots between God's promised deliverance and who he is. And he's so excited about this that it eclipses everything else on his agenda. It eclipses a walk back home and eclipses wondering where his parents are and when they're coming back to get him. And Jesus here in verse 46 is the living fulfillment of Psalm chapter 119 verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And he was living and learning the principle that was going to guard Jesus from temptation at the hands of Satan, that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that falls from the mouth of God. And so we could summarize Jesus' growth here in this passage with verse 52, that he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But what it looks like, what it looks like is Jesus listening to God's word and loving God's word and living God's word. That's what godly growth looks like. Now before we move on to our, our second I want to stop and make a point of application here. And I want to speak especially to the young people. If you're four years old, if you are seven, or if you are 12, or you are 17, or you're 25, that's a broad uh, category here. If you are a young person in the congregation today, pay attention and look and learn from Jesus in verse 46. Who is Jesus? Well, he's our Savior. He's the one who came to do for his people what we cannot do for ourselves. He came to pay for the sins that we could not pay for. He came to die a death that we could not pay for. He is our Savior. He is our substitute. He does what we cannot do. But Jesus is also our example. He came also to show us what we should do. And what we can do is his Holy Spirit works in us. And so what we see, what, what it looks like to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord to grow in life and in godliness, this is the example that Jesus is setting for you. Jesus was willing to listen to the word of God, and he delighted in what it had to say to him. And so if you are young, never think that you are too young 
to begin to listen to God's word. Don't think for a moment that this is something that you'll do or you'll get around to when you're in your 30s, when you're older, and when you have kids, and when life is settled down, and when things are more important. There's a reason that in this church we don't stop halfway through and remove the children. Because all of us should be sitting together under the preaching and the reading of God's Word. All of us should be growing together as the Lord speaks into His people's lives. It is never too early to begin listening and paying attention to the preaching of God's Word. It is never too early to begin reading the Bible for yourself to see what it says to you. This is the way one pastor put it. J.C. Ryle, a much older and wiser man, he said, let Christian boys and girls learn from Jesus at the age of 12. Let them remember that if they are old enough to do wrong, they are old enough to do right. If they are old enough to read storybooks and to talk, they are also able to read their Bibles and to pray. And so for you young people, start early. Be a student of God's Word. You may not understand everything you read at first. You may have to grow the way Jesus grew. You may have to ask hard questions. You may have to think long and hard about what you're hearing here. But, but this is the model. This is the example that Christ gives to his people, even to young children, that we should grow to love and know God's word. And a word of encouragement to the parents as well. Let me plead with you to lead your children in being students of God's word. That's a hard thing to do. Very often it means that there are things that you need to give up. There are schedule changes you need to make for your family. There are activities that you may not be involved in so that your family can be together under God's word, learning what he has to say to you. Give up whatever you have to give up. Change whatever you have to change. Do whatever the Lord will enable you to do to gather together with your family and teach them and lead them the value to learn the value of God's word. And it means that they're going to have to see you leading by example. It means that you may have to speak to your children and confess the sins of your parenting as God's word exposes them. It may mean that you have to get over the awkwardness of talking to your children and asking them spiritual questions, especially if your kids are already teenagers and it's been a long time since you've asked them how things are with their soul. But let me implore you, as the Lord enables you, teach your children to be students of the word. And for all of us, whether you're a parent or a child, this is what godly growth looks like. It looks like believers who look like Jesus, growing in wisdom and favor as we delight in God's word. So there we see is Jesus' growth, and by his Holy Spirit, our growth as well. well now let's turn and consider Jesus' identity. And this really is the issue that this passage has been driving at all along. And the way this passage reads, it's like one of those long, meandering jokes uh, that gets to one very quick punchline at the end. The punchline uh, comes in verses 48 and 49, this exchange between Jesus and his mother. This is what it's been leading up to all along. And it happens in this exchange. Now, the thing that's interesting about this exchange uh, between Jesus and his mother is the way that it looks so much like rabbinic disputation. Here's Jesus sitting in the temple. What does it say he's doing? Well, he's listening and he's asking questions. That's really key. Because Jewish scholars at the time thought that wisdom, at least in a large measure, was, was counted in terms of being able to ask the insightful questions. 
being able to dig just a little bit deeper under the surface and see the issues that lie behind these spiritual questions. And as Jesus ages and as you watch him in his adult life and his ministry, you will see this everywhere, by the way. This is a pattern that will follow through for all of his ministry that the scribes and the Pharisees come with their deep questions trying to trip him up. And how does Jesus respond? But he gives them an even better question. And it exposes their intentions and their hypocrisy. Well, minus the hypocrisy, that's what's happening here. Verses 48 and 49 is a dialogue between Mary and Jesus, and it consists mostly of questions. One question from Mary and two as a response from Jesus. Now, what do you notice about Mary's question, except that her question is focused not on Jesus, but on herself? Her question is focused on what she is suffering. In fact, it's explicit. There's an emphasis to it in the original. She's actually saying to him, why have you done this to us? That's the point. Why are you treating us this way? And then she adds a little bit of parental guilt, and maybe you can hear one of your parents saying it to you. Do you have any idea what your father and I have been through as we've been looking for you? And in a human way, we can understand where she's coming from. The exasperation of this mother who's looking for her son. It was in my uh, second year at seminary. There was a knock on the door. I was at home alone with Neil, who was still just an infant. There was a knock on my door, and it was a friend. He was always very jovial. Another student, and his face was white with terror. Have you seen my son? Can you come and help me find my son? It turns out that their three-year-old had somehow opened the door of their apartment and gotten out of their apartment building and all by himself, unbeknownst to anyone, had walked across campus to go and visit the playground and nobody could find him for about 20 minutes. And if you have ever lost a child in a public place, even for a split second, you know the fear and the anxiety that grips you and makes you feel like you're going to suffocate until you know exactly where that child is and you know that he's safe. And so we can understand in an earthly way the reason that Mary comes and says, why have you done this? Because she's afraid and because she's suffering and she speaks it out of that fear, out of her anguished mother's heart, but her question is all about her. And Jesus responds by reminding her of his identity. It's really hard to understand what inflection we should give uh, to Jesus' question as we read it out loud or even in our minds. It sounds a bit like a rebuke. It sounds like a challenge. But I think that really it was, it was genuine amazement. This has been a theme in Luke so far. For two chapters, we've seen people uh, pondering and marveling and treasuring all the things that have happened. We see Jesus in the temple and the people are amazed as people are astonished. Well, now it's Jesus' turn. And just as later he will mark the unbelief of the people in his own hometown, so now I think Jesus is genuinely marveling. Why is it that you spent so much time looking for me? Why were you so worried about where I might be? Don't you understand who I am? That's his question. Hadn't she also heard the message of the prophets 
and the angels and the shepherds? Had she forgotten the calling that hangs over Jesus' entire life? Surely she has to understand. It's not as though uh, he intended any harm or any anguish for his earthly father. And there's a parallelism here. Do you understand what your father and I have been through? Surely he wasn't intending any harm to his earthly father, but Mary's got to know that there is a much more important heavenly father whose will and word directs every corner of Jesus' being. Surely she should remember that he is first the son of the Most High and only then the son of the carpenter. Surely she should know that Jesus is the perfect son who always loves to listen to his father, and that's the point of the question. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that there is a necessity placed upon my life by virtue of who I am and by virtue of who my father is? It's a question of identity. It's a question of relationship. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know that I had to be about the father's business? Both translations are fine there, by the way. Neither business nor house shows up in the original, so we're reading something into it. But Jesus is saying, didn't you know that I had to be near to my Father, where he is and what he's doing and what he's proclaiming and what he's promising to his people? Don't you know that every fiber of my being as I'm growing and experiencing this world that I've been born into, don't you know that everything cries out for me to be near him and to please him in everything I do? Don't you know who I am? That's the question. And here is the single picture the Holy Spirit has displayed of Jesus for the first 30 years of life after infancy. It is the only image that summarizes his growth in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. It's a picture of Jesus pointing to heaven and saying, absolutely everything I do is about pleasing the one who sent me into the world. Everything I do is about delighting in the Father who delights in me this is who I am. And I think even if there is a rebuke, it's very subtle. It's very gentle. It's very compassionate. But Jesus is confronting Mary with the realization that if she had really believed who he was, there was no reason for fear and anxiety and worry. No reason for thinking that whatever Jesus is up to, it's somehow meant to harm her, and that was instructive for Mary as she went back and she pondered these things. As Mary is realizing that already she's beginning to feel the pain of the sorrow of that sword that Simeon told her would pierce through her own soul. It's instructive for Mary as she's already realizing that her relationship with Jesus is no guarantee that her life will be free from experiences that are unexpected and unpleasant. Instructive for Mary, who feels that all of this has somehow come against her. And Jesus is asking his mother if perhaps, in the rush of anxiety and affliction, she has forgotten to remember who he is. And maybe that's the picture you need to see today, too. Jesus, who came into the world to do the will of his Father perfectly. Jesus, who is the always obedient Son in whom the Father delights. Jesus, who came into the world to be the firstborn son who was not spared. The Lamb of God who gave his life as a ransom for many, whose blood covers those who look to the Lord in faith. Maybe that's the picture you need to see today. And if you see him through the eyes of faith, 
you see him in the words of Scripture today. The Lord is saying to you the same thing that he would later say to those disciples on the mountain. This is my son. Listen to him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for sending your son into the world to be the savior of sinners. We thank you for his perfect righteousness and his obedience. We thank you that he learned obedience through what he suffered, and he suffered on our behalf. And so, oh, Lord, we pray, help us always to have our eyes fixed on him who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who goes before us, who calls us to live lives as children of God by faith in him. Oh, Lord, help us to see him and believe him and to listen to him and to learn from you as we see him in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.